0: Hello, and welcome to a special season of Outside Inside Radio. I'm your host, Kathy Foley-Meyer, and for this season, we will be interviewing writers who contributed to the recently published book, The Sentences That Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison. The book is part of PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Initiatives. PEN America describes itself as, quote, a nationwide community of writers and literary professionals as well as devoted readers and supporters who join with them to carry out Pen America's mission. Pen America advocates for writers under threat worldwide and public policies that bolster freedom of speech and offers platforms to lift up the work and views of those whose voices have too often gone unheard or been ignored. Today I'm speaking with Kate Meissner and Spoon Jackson. Kate is the Director of Prison and Justice Writing at PEN America. She is a multidisciplinary creator. Her writing and visual work has been published in, among others, The Guardian, Harper's Bazaar, and The Literary Review. And her book of hybrid poetry, Let It Die Hungry, which he wrote and illustrated, was published in 2016. Spoon Jackson is a radio producer and Uncuffed, stories from Solano State Prison. A columnist for the Swedish newspaper Global Oxygen, and a frequent contributor to the Good Men Project. He has won four Penn Prison Writing Awards and has been featured in four documentary films. Welcome to the podcast, both of you.
1: Thank you, Kathy. Thank you very much.
0: So, Spoon, I'm going to start with you. Um, At the beginning of your essay, I was really intrigued by something you said. You described going to a poetry class held in a basement while wearing sunglasses and you say, I always wore dark shades, even at night. I did not want anyone to steal my eyes. Can you describe what you meant by that? Is that a metaphor for something? Or like a reality? or?
2: Yeah, and it's a metaphor because, you know, the eyes are the windows to the soul. You know, you can see, you can know, tell stories and stuff. So I didn't want my story to be told by my eyes at that time because I was still learning. Prison was a learning experience for me because I had never been in prison before. And therefore, I I had to embrace silence and and mystery in order to gain what I needed to gain to walk my walk in prison.
0: Got it. No, that that makes perfect sense. So one of the rules that you lay out in your essay is quote, believe deeply in the worth of your own gifts. And it seems like another way of saying to be sure to recognize your own humanity, which can be hard in a regimented setting like prison. And in the same section, you talk about how communication and recognition from two singer-songwriters saved you and reinforced your vision of yourself. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is it possible to do this for yourself or do you always need recognition from another human being?
2: Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Uh, The thing for me was, before I found out I was an artist, uh, a poet, or anything that had to do with the literary field, I just became in love with books and knowledge. And all I wanted to do was be silent. That was another reason why I had the shades on. Because I was loving knowledge in the world. It was opening up for me the different books I was reading and the wisdom I was getting. And and, and it, it. Introduced me to my own humanity, he, he me, like he said. Because I didn't know that I had anything inside me that could embrace all these different masterpieces, the books that was, I was reading, and the philosophies, and later on the poetry and the, and, and the, the, the plays. Because at first I was just, it said, never speak unless you can improve on silence. And I used to practice that. That meant that I never said hardly anything because it's almost impossible to improve on silence in my <laughs> So I was thinking that uh, that once I found out that every time I read or studied something in philosophy, they always reference a poem, Dante or uh, Frost or Langston Hughes and, other poets and I would say, man, but it's poetry stuff. You know, I didn't, you know, I don't even I haven't even read a poem in my life or remember reading one. I failed in school, I was ass I messing up in school and tearing you know, up stuff and so I had no knowledge of poetry or anything. So when I got to reading they kept, kept referencing poetry, that would have and made me sign up for a poetry play. That's why I signed up for one because uh I kept hearing references to Dante's Inferno and Elliot and and all kinds of different poets from uh, the Elliot, the Greek poets and different African poets and Roman poets and, and Muslim poets and stuff like that. So when I got into the poetry class, I still didn't speak for a long time, but I knew I was at home. I knew I was in a place where I could grow and blossom, even in my silence, and I was still bent on remaining silent at that
0: stage, and was it soon after that that you met the the singer songwriters, Annie DeFranco, I think, and another songwriter oh
2: oh oh, oh that was
0: re- that was after, yeah
2: that was a long time after i it was in two thousand what happened was I was at another prison they sent me back to New Folsom, where I met with Jim Carlson, who initially got Judith into Judith try in bomb coming into San Quentin to that basement classroom. Wow. And I um, ended up being the teacher for arts and directions of creative writing up there at New Folsom. So Annie, somebody uh, who was it? Jerry Snopes, he's out of Grass Valley. She was doing a public radio station there. And she was bringing in little CDs and stuff to donate to the writing program and other programs there at New Folsom. So there was this person that named Arnie DeFranco. I said, who is that? You know, so I listened to her words of poetry, especially the one about 9-11. And, man, and, and, and I said, wow, this is poetry. And this is, man, I would love to meet this person and all that. And so I started using her songs and poetry as the way poetry is supposed to be. You know, it's, it's just saying it's supposed to. But and I would play it, and it would offend the people that, you know, really didn't have the freedom inside to embrace good poetry. And other people it just opened them up like it did me. And uh, after that, I left New Folsom and went down to Lancaster. And then uh, was a showy bowbender, she came to visit me. And she was doing a prison music project. And that was about 20-something, twenty. 20- 2014, 2013, she had been going to Fosa doing the but then she came down to Lancaster to visit after she had stopped doing the project up there at Fosa. So one day I called her and she said, Guess I got somebody on the line. I said, What are you talking about? And boom, she introduced me to Arnie, because I had been using and She and I, Arnie, talked and we've been talking ever since the game
0: you know, great friends. and Yeah. No, that's, that was, it was a really inspiring part of the book. And I wanted to ask you, when did you know that you were an artist? Like, what was the defining kind of creative moment for you?
2: Yeah, I had to be with Judy Toggenbaum because she, uh, She, again, in that basement classroom, she allowed me to stay in that room, even though I wasn't talking to nobody. I put chairs and desks around me to keep people the hell away from me. Or I would sit out in the hall outside the classroom, but I was listening to everything going on and and the poetry from the prisoners and from the guests and stuff like that was just filling me up with uh, words and with joy and stuff, but I still didn't know I was a poet. So then one day, they decided, well, they're going to do individual consultations and Judith for some reason, picked me to be her first individual consultation even before we went downstairs. We got to talking, I got to tell her about the desert and all that, and she just, I didn't know, but she was registered in her mind, and then when we got down to the, the basic thing, she wrote it all out on paper, and it was called the Heart of the High Desert. We ended up naming it, but I was speaking poems. I didn't know it. Yeah. All my studies, I was studying extensively philosophy and stuff like that. And when she showed me that, that inspired me, but I didn't think of myself as a poet until one day I was in, trying to write a Christmas poem, and No Beauty and Still More came out just like it was. I didn't change the word, and I said, Where in the hell that poem came from? I had no idea. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, I, I, in fact, I want to read, if you don't mind, from your a couple or several lines from your memoir with Judith. Um, And it's from, because I think it really conveys, you know, very effectively uh, what, what you just said. And it's from chapter eight, which is titled the poet. And you write, I had found my niche, my own humanity through my journey, studies and poetry I had uncovered inside myself a way of transforming my anger, sadness, pain, and unrealness into art by by embracing the moment. I often took umbrage at rules that were there just to further punish and humiliate prisoners, rules put there to incite and make a person turn more animal-like instead of redeeming himself. I knew how to be a robot and animal just for the sake of destroying things and hurting people. For self-rehabilitation or any kind of restorative work to succeed, there must be constant contact and exchange with the public, people of all ages, colors, and cultures. There must be continuous dialogue and programs that put mirrors up to everyone's faces, not just the prisoners. Your memoir with Judith was published in 2010, more than 13 years ago, and I want to know if you feel like we've made progress since then.
2: Absolutely. I believe that that things have changed some because I look at the young folks and uh, they are all colors and they are all genders and and they are coming together, changing laws, changing attitudes, the young folks are getting together. They, they, together they're they tripping on colors and they tripping on justice and on humanity, on being one with uh, all human beings and with the universe. And the young folks, uh, hopefully they'll keep that up. But that's what I see right now. I see a bunch of young kids and and, and college students and stuff right now trying to just be real and trying to grow and glow and trying to, you know, love each other instead of uh, that discriminatory stuff, and attitude that that embraced the past, you know, that embraced uh, slavery, that embraced uh, racism and sexism and all that. Because people still got to hold mirrors up to themselves, especially the older ones all the cats do because they got institutionalized uh, racism and sexism in this country. They ain't gone. It's just that the youngsters are you know, they hanging out together. They're not promoting themselves. They black, white, brown, purple and they get together. On all on nearly all levels right now.
0: Yes, and I want to mention the title of the memoir, which I realized I forgot to do, it's by heart, Poetry, Prison and Two Lives. And it's by Judith Tannenbaum and Spoon Jackson. So, um, how did you meet Kate's? Was it through a class that she taught or? from
2: Kate, Kate, mistress? Yes. yes.
0: <laughs> Kate's who was on the line with us. Do
1: you know how many Kates I know? Well, I got you're famous. Kate Adams.
0: <laughs> right. Sorry, I meant Kate's myself. Sorry about that. But it
2: was years ago. Listen, Spoon. Years ago
1: hold up. I just um, got to correct you here. There's only one Kate's with an S.
2: Come on, man! All right, go for it. Yeah, now you right. can answer you're the question. You're absolutely correct. And uh, <laughs> we met uh, through Penn, and he's always he's admirer of Annie DeFranco, my friend Annie. And when I mention Annie, I end up with meeting a lot of people. Everybody. <laughs> but no, uh, it's, it's been cool But I've been a part of Penn since the '90s, I think, when I first. I uh, had some poems sent in, you know, and, you know, so, and over for for Jackson, for Jackson, and they're running a pen writing program, and she did a job with this book, I'll tell you, this book is awesome. Yeah, it's awesome how she did that, and all uh, the backing and everything she got behind it. And I'm still trying to promote it, and and, you know, and they donate 50,000, what is it, 50,000
1: copies? 75,000. Like she and I have
2: always, like we already been connected. A lot of us have been connected even though physically we haven't met. But as soon as we do, we know there's nothing phony or fake about us. we just being real and we found our attention, sharing the magic of poetry, and drama, uh, journalism, podcast, radio, anything you can name. We have people singing and songs and music.
0: It's amazing. It is amazing. It's a labor of love, and it definitely shows. And I want to ask both of you, actually, what the most important thing you think is that people on the outside need to know or learn about our system, and why do yeah. you think it's so hard to kind of change it? So when
1: you go
2: first. I think it has to be abolished. Yeah, I think it has to be abolished. This prison system, because it's 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 infiltrated with 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 so much uh, hatred and and, and revenge, and and they waiting until after you somebody has been convicted to act like they fixing the problem. The problem is 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 way before then, so the resources need to be put in other places as opposed to shutting prison down is the key. And they should be abolishing the resources to put in a place where they can really help the kids before they become uh, a part of this uh, system that the United States has in place.
1: I mean, I I completely agree. And I I think we're at a place in in our society where we've seen that, you know, Rikers Island, for example, the most notorious jail, uh, just a hellscape of abuse started as a reform effort actually many years ago so we see that reform iterating on the, uh, on the same theme ends us up at the same place which is that period prison doesn't work for anybody it doesn't work for the victim doesn't work for the survivor doesn't work for the perpetrator those uh, those words are often interconnected or you know could be applied to the same person. Everybody I've met in prison who's changed or gone through a personal transformation, uh, nobody I don't think would credit prison for that. It's something that intervened while they were in prison and that often is an instructor like Judith Tannenbaum that, that Spoon's mentioning, or it's a piece of art, or it's a book. So what really changes people is knowledge, connection, trust, healing deep emotional wounds, sometimes ancestral wounds. Yeah, trauma, We all, we all traumatized.
2: Especially if you're in for a capital crime or something, you traumatize. You got you gotta fix that trauma, that childhood trauma, that prison trauma, that PTSD. And and, and you gotta have your soul, your heart gotta do that, you know? We need counselors and it and it could be an outpatient thing for the most part and if you get it dip it in the bud as kids and you know, it's just this whole system that they got that it embraced. They're people of different colors against each other, and then when they try to keep their foot on the women's neck, I think the young folks are doing a, a hell of a job coming together, in all colors to help change stuff.
0: I think. Yeah, I was going to ask you because I noticed you are writing for a Swedish publication,
2: yeah.
0: And then I want to ask you how you wound up doing that, and do you think, do you have any sense of how their attitudes about incarceration are different from ours?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it came about, they contacted me, actually, it was a, a guy that, I think I've been writing for more than one, that was following my career or something and uh, wanted me to just write for their newspaper, Oxygen. And the thing is, it's translated, though, from, and I got Anya, my friend Anya, she translates it from English to Swedish, and they publish articles and stuff like that. So what happens a lot of time for me is just that people see my writing somewhere, and Right. They inspired, they want me to write for
0: them. Yeah. And is your writing read inside Swedish institutions? Because I'm, I'm kind of curious as to how their attitude is about incarceration kind of differs from ours.
2: It changed a little bit. I think they only got one uh, maximum security prison. When the United States was had pre-built uh, uh, building prisons on Wall Street... And they were trying to promote it in Australia and Sweden and stuff like that, get them to go put up these fabricated prisons. But fortunately I think some of that has been tampered down and and they're not gonna turn completely like the United States as far their penal system Because, so, like I said, they actually have they have passes for people to get out and go do work on their mental health. They got mental health programs that really try to help you with but you do not help you get better. It's not a warehouse. It's not a warehouse. It's an interactive thing. They, they want, like they said in Germany, they said in, and uh, I think the Hutu in the other side that was fighting over there in Africa, the genocide that was going on there. They said we well, need, we want to welcome our brothers and sisters back into society. That's why they don't take the thing and throw away the key on anybody over there. No matter what their crime was, they don't take it to throw away the key. They want to, when ready, they want to welcome them back into society. They have steps set in place so that they can take their stepping stones and make it back. A lot of uh, times, individuals are cut off from humanity. It's their own, by a lot of their own choices, but still, there's a way to bring, to restore,
0: so Spoon um, you've selected a poem for us. Can you tell us a little bit about it before you read it?
2: Uh, this is uh, the first poem uh, that I wrote on my own basically Okay. showed it to Judith and she was blown away by it. And that day she took it around showing it to all the administrators and people in the prison and everybody. It talks me as the poet, and from that day on so I started writing poetry and sharing it with people. And this was, uh, I call myself writing a Christmas poem. And this call came out just like it did. It's called No Beauty in Cell Bars. Restless, unable to sleep. Keys, bars, guns being racked. Year after year, endless echoes of steel kissing steel. Noise, constant yelling, nothing said. Vegetating faces lost faces, dusted faces, a lifer, a dreamer, tomorrow's a dream, yesterday's a memory, both the passing of a cloud. How I long for the silence of a raindrop falling gently to earth, the magnificence of a rose blooming into as many hues of color, the brilliance of a rainbow when it sweetly lights up the sky after a pounding rainfall, Picnics in the rich green meadow. We saw the beauty in butterflies, we made them our symbol, Tiny grains of sand on glass, a tear that may engender a waterfall. The memories, the dreams are now. Love is now. There's no beauty in cell bars.
0: Thank you so much. That was really, really beautiful. And I can see why she passed it around.
2: This is the other half because there's always one foot in darkness and one foot in light. You gotta balance. Oh, this is a uh, the opposite of uh, no beauty in cell bars. I wrote this after a course of Miracle session, when uh, one of the fellows said there was nothing beautiful in prison, which, physically, there isn't. Basically, but you know, this is what I came up with: called beauty in cell bars. We lock ourselves up not because of the bars and steel that surrounds us not because life doesn't bend to our every whim, but because of the projections we place unto our worlds, and judgments, the eye can'ts, the trying to please everyone while not pleasing ourselves. By seeking the beauty on the outside that is surely within, but prisons are created internally and are found everywhere. We allow unnatural and unreal thoughts to be our walls, our limits, because of the dam we build to stop the universal love, the light, It's all within ourselves, this paradise you go to of beauty and love. There's peace where along with the ego you may soar. A place inside that was inspired from the inner and above, which are one and the same. The world may not bend to your every whim, but it will flow wherever you want it to go, where it's supposed to go. There's beauty in cell
0: bars. (laughs) I get it. I love the balance of the darkness and the light. Thank you. Thank you so much, Spoon. So and I wanted to ask Kate if the book was being published in other languages.
1: Well, we did just get a we did just get a grant to translate it into Spanish, and we have a translator working on that, which is really exciting. It's the number one most non-English requested in the US. We originally had a publisher looking to publish it in Latin America and help us disseminate it, but they can't take on the project anymore. So if anybody listening knows of a press interested in doing that, we're now rerouting and pursuing that. Thanks to Art for Justice Fund before they close for good and in hooking us up with that. And that's something we're doing also in partnership with Buzz Dreisinger, who does Incarcerated Nations Network, uh, which is a project that works in prisons globally. Awesome. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. But uh,
2: by heart, I have no knowledge of it being uh, translated into other languages. I wish it was, but no, it hasn't been. Speak it out. Yeah, so I have a poetry book published in Germany.
0: You have a book of poetry published in Germany?
2: Yeah, a full-length book. All German. I don't know what it's saying, but I know it's mine Okay.
1: (laughs) Remember when we were working on this essay and I was like, tell me about all the creative projects you've done it was like detective work because we'd sit on the phone and you would say like, it's a book in German, but I don't know what the title, is, I can't pronounce it. I'm Googling it, I found it, I found it on Amazon. <laughs> I mean, it really, I laugh at it, like lovingly, you've done so much, but also it gives a sense of, you know, you put all this work in the world and so much of it you can't even see the tangible results of, you know, because of where you are. So I think for listeners who aren't familiar, Listeners who are familiar, who are in prison, will certainly understand that. But for, for listeners who aren't, you know, that's, that must be a pretty surreal feeling. You know, my book in Germany, dot, dot, dot.
2: Yeah. Hey, and uh, I want to, before I go, i got to get my shot and everything right now. Okay. Uh, there's this new publication called Rabbits of Realness. It's on Instagram. And I need everybody to send one line talking about their inner rabbit. What is your inner rabbit?
0: rabbits It's called Rabbits to Realness?
2: Rabbits to Realness, and we got uh, a couple little small publications. And you can get a synopsis of uh, Sarah Marie and Spoon Jackson of what we're doing for the, uh, from uh, Justice Arts Coalition. Uh, okay. Uh, you can well, check out the Instagram because we got, I think you'll enjoy it because it talks about how to write a letter and stuff like that, becoming a law store It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you. And an honor to
2: speak with you two and be there. And I hope we can do it
1: again, I hope. All right, my friend. Yes, I hope hope so, too. There we go. Yeah.
0: Now there were two. So, Kate, I wanted to ask you about your essay. You talk about a vast landscape of writers across the U.S. or perhaps the world who work disconnected from each other. And this book, you know, is a means to forge connections. And you say, I picture them all kneeling on the edge of the earth to set their messages in bottles, a sale, which is a really powerful image. And when I read it, I got a picture in my mind as well as those millions of writers kneeling and the kind of strength of their writing actually changing the trajectory, like the spin of the earth and the trajectory of the carceral system. And, you know, we have such a huge amount of people in prison in the U.S. and their collective voices are, would seem to be a weighty sample of humanity. But and it's powerful, but not powerful enough to create a more just system. And when you were when we were talking with Spoon, I got this picture of this all of this writing and talent that is behind a wall and and like a little hole opens up and a kind of little bits of it leak <laughs> leak out when act and there's all this kind of pressure building, you know. And this book was like if somebody had just, you know, kind of made the hole wider or slid it and like just tons of stuff comes creating, like just pouring out. Mm. It must feel like that when you're teaching there.
1: Yeah, I haven't. I don't teach um, in prisons anymore, actually. Our program works with individuals through the walls. So five years ago, when I took over this program, I came from a trajectory of teaching in prisons and that's why Spoon was saying, we haven't met in person, you know, but we've all worked together over the phone. Um, Spoon's in California. I'm in New York. But <clears throat> I have visited over 25 prisons and jails in the U.S., so I'm familiar with the system. That's the background I come from. Uh, putting this book together was a different story because, or working even at Penn is a different story because it's not just... 20 people in a classroom opening up their hearts, we have piles and piles and piles of letters on our desks. We have a person on our team whose almost sole job is just to process the mail that comes in because most things come in through the physical mail with prison. There's not really internet. Uh, If there is a a form of email, it's a kind of a pay-to-play model, a JPay or a Securus where you have to log in and Pay money to send emails. It's one directional. They can't search for you. You have to add them as the person on the outside. So it's, the mail is still a very um, potent form of communication. The, the most potent form of communication. It's how stories get out. So yes, I feel that. But I feel I felt it before this book, and I felt it coming to pen on a much grander scale, taking it out of the actual setting and room and into just uh, the imaginations and desperation and desires of so many people in our system. It really uh, gives me a sense of the numbers in a way that I couldn't have conceptualized before.
0: Right. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you because you are also an artist and I wanted, I was curious as to how this has affected your own art practice or, you know, if it has.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a great question, Kathy. And, you know, I'll tell you a story about a year ago, this book came out on January 11th last year, which I love as a number, one, one, one. But uh, I was here, I was here in my apartment and I was alone. My partner was uh, out, of, out of the country and I got the advance review copy of the book. So a tangible copy. And I'd been working on it for four years, uh, working closely with people. I mean, the process of even getting the essay together with Spoon, it, it wasn't just an anthology of collected writings. I was really going to people that I knew were leaders in this work and saying, I know you've done this, can you write about it for me and let's shape it together? Because I was the only one who had access to the full spread of the book, right? And so we had to edit out repetition and all of this. So I'm sitting there with this final product that I've been in communication with 50 contributors on and and ensconced in on the computer and through a pandemic. So also kind of very two dimensional, you know, hadn't come into the 3D for me. And so I opened the book and I read, uh, reread Thomas Bartlett Whitaker's essay, which talks about how you must write because you're haunted. He talks about 149 men dying on death row while he was on death row before being uh, pardoned from death row, and, and that all of their stories went with them, and that's his purpose. And I just, a chill went through me, and I thought, what am I avoiding? What do I think I'm not good enough for? Where am I not being free? What am I overperforming in my work? The message I got was, how dare you not put your work or time and energy into your work, Cates? That's what all of these writers you're working with are telling you, and they're telling you it, and the audience, from prison. Not just what's your excuse, but what's your intention? What's your purpose? Who are you being? How are you walking? And I wanted to be more than just a shepherd of the stories. I wanted to be like Spoon says and, and talks about, like a real... Uh, part of this gift culture, artist to artist. So, and I do have friends in prison that I exchange work with, poems, and get feedback on. And and uh, and that I think uh, it solidified that I'm part of the community in a in a different way, and propelled me to really take the advice that I had been curating for other people. Like, who oh, I'm the audience too. <laughs> That's what I discovered, you know, Kathy? (laughs) Exactly. No, I
0: felt like that when I read the book. And I think it's interesting just what you were talking about before, where people who are, in a sense, separated from vast swaths of humanity actually are more sensitive to what it means to be out in the world than the people who are out in the
1: world. Yeah, talk about being exposed. I mean, there's a little quote from Elizabeth Hawes in the book. I think it's embedded in my intro to the the second chapter that she wrote for actually a, a pen event that we did a few years ago called Exposure on Writing in Prison. And she, and I often use it in panels uh, to, talk, to frame for uh, writers who are not working through the walls to understand just what it takes, the risks a writer in prison is up against. And one of them right. is certainly administration coming down on you because you're not supposed to be making a living or... You get too much right. fun or whatever, you know. It's it, it it it's a flag, but also, you know, you're subjecting yourself to being looked up for this crime that you're kind mm-hmm. of using writing to reestablish your identity. But you're always going to be so. The the question Elizabeth says is, is it worth my vulnerability to open this wound again? Essentially, right. And so I think there's something incredibly brave and instructive about. Now we're in a, an era of book banning, and we're seeing that writing is seen as dangerous again. But a couple of years right. ago, it didn't feel that way, right? So, putting in the context of a few years ago, I used to say there is one place where writing is still. We think about Neruda being Pablo Neruda being exiled for his writing, right? There's still one place right. that it's very dangerous to be a writer, and that is in American prisons. And so, I think there's also something to learn about resiliency, about purpose, and about uh, you know that connection with the soul, like Spoon is saying.
0: Right. Yeah. And th- and just the title, when the sentences that create us, I was thinking about who the us actually is mm. um, when I first got it. And, you know, I love the way that this book, it reinforces our shared humanity. And it's I feel like it's possible. The only way we're going to change, you know, the system is if we remember the humanity that is there, because once you do that, you can't possibly keep the structure going in the same way Mm. because it's so contrary to, you know, treating every human being as valuable. And I get that, obviously, some people are behind bars because they actually haven't done that in their own lives, you know, for whatever reason. Um, And there are many reasons. Um, A couple of the themes that have come up, though, have been reinforced in these interviews. Um, One is, you know, trauma, unhealed trauma. I like the approach that Spoon was... Describing where he talks about uh, in other countries, they work on the sort of whole human and say, "Okay, we look forward to you returning to society, and we're going to help you."
1: What a different actually do start. that. Yeah, it's a completely.
0: It's you know I, we I th- I think we're we are still in the, you know, crime and punishment is the
1: lock them up and you know, throw away the key.
0: Yeah, and we are we are way more into the. The punishment phase and uh yeah and it does feel in some ways like we're you know slipping backwards but it's also because we haven't really come to terms with the meaning of the history of our country so it's Absolutely. it's kind of like there has to be a like a whole healing of that before we can confront you know i mean it's not like it's going to wait for us but um it's part of the reason we are the way that we are and i feel like if we can acknowledge that then you can move on from there but
1: it takes some work isn't it
0: it certainly does so many people have pointed out the links you know from michelle alexander and and um you know so many scholars and writers and and um, creative people and poets. So
1: I mean, it's undeniable. But I would even argue back to you know the the, the colonization of America and the Right. Generation. Exactly. I mean, it go, you know, it's like these massive events of of exerting power and dominance. I mean, it's so baked into our narrative as a culture, the undercurrent, right? Because the overstory is like America the Brave and Free, and the understory is is is, is bubbling always, right? I, f- I i hear you and i feel you and i think these are not easy answers and we're all kind of um putting out our ideas together and i i even question if humanizing is even enough i feel like i've been hearing that word for 15 years like it's next and i think there's a right real exactly reckoning we have to do between our uh our kind of fears and our intellectual ideals and putting things into practice we're in a cauldron of unrest right now which is a an exciting place to be because something could spring forth from that. Like Spoon said, a lot of young people are in the conversation. But, of course, I'm always like, how do we get offline and get into community and get into action um, from from the various gifts we have to offer? You know, I'm not an organizer. I'm not an activist necessarily, although I work in this realm. Uh, Some might call me it, but I, I don't call myself it. I call myself an artist. And I bring the artist friends. That's what I, you know, like that's yeah. that's my offering. Yeah. So here we created this new possibility in this book, and I think that there's something to learn from that as an ecosystem, and to apply, you know, cross cultural sectors and cross activist spaces, et cetera.
0: No, I I agree with you. I think young people, especially nowadays, can perceive of their art as activism at the same time, and they. Like well, this is my change, and this is how I'm going to make it and and they do, and they so much of it is just a change. I know my for myself, I had a change in perspective about people behind bars when a friend of ours talked about his son, and he did it in such a loving and supportive way, and it was like a shock it was like a you know it shouldn't have been, but it's because of the shame culture that we also have that is right up there and permeates everything. And he had none of that. It was like, you know, I, I visit him, you know, on a regular basis and, and he also has lives in California, but sometimes has work in where this, where his son is incarcerated. And um, it was a revelation. And I was like, wow. You
1: know, that's a I, love hearing beautiful thing. I love hearing that Kathy, because I think so often any change happens between uh, disparate communities or people who have been highly stigmatized, it comes through personal connection, right, how we really change. It does. And so I think about, you know, What's kind of interesting, I always think about the conversation with prisoners. I'm like, the numbers of people incarcerated and numbers of people impacted by incarceration, by the ripple effect, friends, family, community. I mean, my God, it's like the most American story there is at this point. Right? You know, it's not an exceptional story. It's not a sensational story, but somehow it, it keeps being because of the culture of violence around it uh, that that is that often state perpetuated. You know, I'm not even talking about, you know, individuals and their crimes. But I think, you know, what's kind of second best is encountering, this is where I think the humanizing question does does really come in, and uh, the value of encountering and disrupting the mental image you have. So I think one of one story I have of something really, I'm really proud of is the, my first semester, my first season working at PEN America when I was manager of this program. I didn't have a director. Uh, so for all intents and purposes, I was the manager slash director. and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the lovely world of nonprofits. profits <laughs> well, you know, I mean, But like, I, I, right. I, I just was laughing at it a little bit um, but the, that first semester I was also teaching or second semester maybe I took a class on at John Jay College of Criminal Justice I was teaching an 8 a.m. class Lord help me never Oof. again never again before work But the most satisfying part of it to me was that some of the student evaluations came back and said, this has changed the way I think about my work. You know, so many young people had come to this major wanting to be detectives or they'd seen CSI, you know, that, that, that (laughs) whole field really uh, made people, they thought it was gonna be like law and order SVU or something. Right. Uh, But I would bring in winning essays from the Penn prison writing contest. And we would use that as our source material to, to, to learn how to write an essay. And, it really opened up a couple of young people's minds and they said, I'm I'm approaching this entirely differently. I came in with a very different idea about who's inside. And to me, that was one of the most direct interventions I felt like came from the work itself where where I stepped outside of the choir. I wasn't talking to the masses. I wasn't reaching the same people who agreed with me. I was really showing young people like there's something to learn from folks inside and I think that's what this book exactly. does too there's something to learn and and Definitely. not just not just on a redemptive scale and not just on a no. scale of you know spirit although that's certainly there but also on a very practical and intellectual level the whole the whole gamut
0: yeah so much of the change um that seems to happen you know that are contained in the pages of this book it's it's people seeing themselves for the first time and also people who are not normally seen being truly seen by others. And you know, that is the, like, that's the ultimate powerful thing. That's the thing that spurs change, you know?
1: It is. And, and there's something too about a book, I think, you know, I think sometimes being seen, uh, can be a very scary thing that people who aren't used to being seen, especially if somebody can see beyond the facade or the mask you've been wearing, yes. right? Many people in prison not only came in with a mask, but continue to wear it because of the setting. Right. So if somebody penetrates that, it can be a little terrifying. Mm-hmm. So I think there's another added benefit of literature in that it's a gentle opening. Yeah. I can lead into these waters alone and take my time. Yes. Yes. You know?
0: That is a... That is a beautiful thing, and I think never I never
1: thought about it that way before. I, but so glad I just did, Kathy. Thank yeah, you. no,
0: I never thought about it that way before. Which which
1: I, ones I have that, stuck out to you? Uh,
0: let's. See. Well, obviously, everyone that I've interviewed, but the sections on memoir and the section and and writing about um, or, or talking about trust, and also the what can sometimes happen when people are seen. And then that light goes away and it's, you know, it's really hard for them because it, it and they may wind up, this was particularly in reference, reference to journalism. Um, I'm not a journalist, but it did strike me that, you know, sometimes they can feel betrayed because you've shown them their light and and they've had it for a while. But, you know, your job is actually to take that and and sort of weave that into everything else. And I think, once human beings start seeing each other, there's a natural inclination to want to keep that connection going. And it's human.
1: It's very human, but isn't that another area where I think the book speaks to, which is my real intention was self-direction. How do people pick this book up and create their own lives with it? Because people are transient. Our mentors and our teachers often don't stay. Even the phrase alone of teacher implies you come into my classroom for a year, you leave. Like that's what we, that's what's baked into our society. So how do you, How do you not become codependent on somebody else's ability to see you, but how do you cultivate that within yourself? I think is a really important step.
0: It is. It's a powerful step. And once you do that, it's sort of like that's your minting in some ways as being a writer or an artist. That's the, you know, you're declaring it within yourself. It's not somebody saying to you, okay, now you are a writer, now you are an artist.
1: Well, that's just accolades and those are tasty snacks, right. but you know, that's a dangerous thing to stake your yourself.
0: Exactly. On.
1: It, and it's a slippery slope, isn't it? <laughs> it is.
0: Especially now when we're in a society where there's a massive move towards um, getting recognition from the largest number of people possible. And exactly. and that is, uh, you know, as like a thing that you should be doing. And And sometimes you have to remember that a lot of that is just noise and you need to be quiet with yourself. And create.
1: It's also just a false promise. The celebrity culture we live within, we you know, the most famous people seem pretty miserable. They can't live normal lives. But this is what we lust for. I mean, there's something to really unpack around that, you know?
0: Right. Be be careful what you wish for. And it's okay to not be seen by huge numbers of people while you're making your art. And even afterwards.
1: That's right. (laughs) So. Got to find out why you need to make it, and then yeah, just, I just did a course actually for adults online this weekend about finding your rightful your the the correct shape you know for you the correct shape for your body of work you've been working on but aren't sure right. what it looks like or how to put it out you know and and we looked at the traditional path but we also looked at a lot of how to even come to the answer by looking at what did I need while I was making this work? What was my need? What was my remedy for myself with the work? And what's my value I can attach with the value of that? And then how do I understand and now translate that to understanding that my audience needs the same thing? So who am I trying to reach with it? So, you know, it's like holding the prism up and looking at it from all different angles. But I think, you know, truly the word artist, you know, is at base level, you're, you never, you're always working for yourself and other people sort of simultaneously, but your first audience is you. Totally. Right?
0: Exactly. And you know when it's ready to get out
1: there. You do. All right. Thank you, Kate. It's been lovely talking My with you. Letter. Did you want a poem or am I making this up?
0: If you have a piece you would like to share,
1: yeah, please I do. I definitely do. And I, I I, think, um, and feel free to use it or not use it, but Kathy, I, 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 I no, normally I wouldn't to push, but I wanted to read it because... Uh, because you mentioning this thing about seeing and being seen. And I think I, it's a gift also for the, the poets at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. I taught there for a number of years. And um, it was all women. It's a women's maximum security prison in New York State. And I think this really expresses that connectivity that can happen. So um, here we go, it's called Praise Poem. The circle's purpose is to see each other, our unspoken rule commit to looking. We were born and we will die. Everything in between is filler, debatable. For example, we have hated a woman for snatching our man away like morning eggs. We stay away at night counting constellations of guilt. We both feel menstrual today, don't talk to us. We call our mothers for comfort. And if they answer, tenuously measure the distance between truth and the length of rain. We read books to remember stories not of our own making or mess and thank God they are good and thank God they are tragic. Tragically, we both wonder if we deserve anything good at all to feel beautiful or enjoy the pleasure of another body when we've screwed or screwed up. We dream of undisturbed sand covering each track and vanishing. But in this room, we crawl through the window inside Dig up from burial the dusty banjo of memory. We play on childhood's climbing tree, branches shedding crab apples snatched up by the deer. We can praise the fawn for cleaning the lawn with her hunger. We can name her tracks in fresh mud. We can call her kin, who the name we've crowned her when she shows her face in the damp morning grass. And though some of us didn't have backyards or a steady bed or a tree to love, we can write a porch into the scene or a birdhouse, or untie a hurt until it stretches its arms out wide as the sea, we can invent this common history, waking up what is untouched and tender, lit deep inside our body's vast night. We can remember it has been proven that we are made of stars always vibrating, sparking, even if it cannot be seen by the foolish eye in each era, there we are unmistakably, a presence growing larger. Yes, we are spinning the entire revolving sky
0: wow that was beautiful thank you (laughs) thank you so much I was getting so many visuals as you were speaking it was that was great
1: I think it brought kind of brings home the the points we're talking about today about connection and being in community and what what writing enables
0: that's it and I couldn't have said it better so thank you so much for joining us
1: Ooh. Kathy, thank you for your generosity and attention on this whole project. I can't wait to listen to all of these and, and celebrate the contributors, you know, <laughs> cheering on. <laughs> yeah. all, right. all right.
0: You've been listening to an episode of outside inside radio brought to you by prison arts collective prison arts collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. We are based at San Diego State University and have additional partnerships with three California State University campuses in Humboldt, Fullerton, and San Bernardino, and with UC Irvine. Prison Arts Collective is a project of California Arts and Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions, are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media created as an extension of our distance learning project in response to COVID-19. Thank you for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Outside Inside Radio.